Hi everyone, my name is Mike. I am an alcoholic. Our home group is the uh, Carry This Message group of West Orange, New Jersey, and it's an honor and privilege to be here and participate and share in this panel. I want to, uh, first of all, thank Bobby for uh, inviting us to do this. And uh, second of all, I want to wish each and every one of you a uh, happy Independence Day. Um, I think it's pretty ironic that uh, we get to be at this roundup and speak on this particular day because if you're an alcoholic sitting in this room this afternoon, I believe each and every one of us has had our own Independence Day. And uh, for us, that happens to be our sobriety day when uh, the power and love and grace of God gave us our true freedom and independence from uh, King Alcohol. And uh, my particular Independence Day date is September the 27th, 1993. And for that, I'm very, 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 very grateful. And uh, there are a lot of people that know me today and a lot of people that knew me while I was drinking that are also grateful that I am sober today. What we've been uh, charged to do is to uh, share our experience with uh, going through this big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, which is uh, AA's basic textbook, a vehicle for learning and transmitting and sharing an experience, if you will. Um, for my first five, five and a half months in Alcoholics Anonymous, I wouldn't, have, as Scott R. is fond of saying, I wouldn't have known a step if it bit me on the face. Uh, I was enjoying all the benefits of step none. <laughs> but I knew all about the fellowship because I had a sponsor who, uh, who was very, let's put it this way, he made sure that I got involved and busy right away in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, when I was about five, five and a half months sober, I knew how to make a really good pot of coffee. Matter of fact, you, uh, you tell me to do anything once, and if it works for me, of course, I got to do it ten times. So uh, not only did I have one coffee commitment at that time, but I had three. Um, it's funny somehow that when it comes to working the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, my actions and behaviors haven't always been that way. Um, which leads me to this picture, this card up here, which I think is really cute because for me it symbolizes um, my best efforts at taking the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I think at heart I am always the child as you see here and even when I'm going up these 12 beautiful golden steps I still have a tendency to uh, to stagger and stumble and, and hit my head on an occasion and uh, I'm a human being today and I definitely don't do these things perfectly um, a thought occurred to me a couple months ago that I have long stop trying to transcend my own humanness. 
Um, I'm not a spiritual giant in Alcoholics Anonymous. What I am is a child of God trying to do the very best I can one day at a time. Um, so when I came in AA at, at five and a half months, because I was getting all those benefits of a step none, um, I was ready to make the supreme sacrifice, as uh, as noted in our doctor's opinion, and I was ready to. Uh, I didn't have enough intestinal fortitude to um, shoot myself to put a gun in my mouth. But uh, the way an alcoholic like like me takes himself out is to go get a big old bottle of vodka and as many pills as he can possibly find and go rent a hotel room for the weekend and uh, to just do myself in and luckily before I took those actions I shared that in the meeting that that's where I was at you know it's like you, you ask a newcomer how you doing well <laughs> I'm actually going to be honest and open enough to tell you um, so I wasn't doing too well at, at about six months sober and I had seen these 12 steps up on the wall I didn't know we were actually supposed to do something about them. I just thought maybe they were a decoration or something. I, I was given a, a big book at my very first meeting, and uh, by the time I got willing to open the thing up, it, it was so old, bats came flying out of it. Um, but eventually I did open that big book, and, and, I, and I had a sponsor who literally, in my early days of sponsorship, um, he literally just stayed one step ahead of me. And I'm here to tell you, if you are two days sober and you think you don't have a message to carry, you think you don't have something to share with someone, one day sober, what I would suggest to you is that you tell that person with one day sober how you got two. And that's literally what this man did for me. And uh, we, he literally stayed one step in front of me. So I was introduced to the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, whenever I do something like this or speak on the big book or do weekend studies, um, the thing I like to talk about first is our AA logo or symbol, if you will, uh, which is really not AA's logo or AA's symbol and never was. Uh, we, we just borrowed it from... Uh, from other spiritual entities. And that's the circle and triangle, which represents the three legacies of Alcoholics Anonymous. At the base of that triangle is recovery. On one side of the triangle is unity. And on the other side of the triangle is service. And that triangle is inside a circle, which keeps all three of those legacies connected. And if I apply each one of those legacies into my own personal life, that promises me that I can become whole as one, united and free. See, what I learned about that symbol is that it's not a symbol that, that's unique into Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an ancient spiritual symbol, which means mind, body, and spirit. And what that circle represents is that when you apply these three legacies into your life, which is the three legacies of the 12 steps, the 12 traditions, and the 12 concepts of Alcoholics Anonymous, if I apply 
all 36 of those spiritual principles in my life, I can become whole as one in body, mind, and spirit. Something that I never had my entire life. And what that symbol also tells me is that A offers a three-part solution for a three-part problem. And what my sponsor and the other teachers I've had in Alcoholics Anonymous have shared with me is that Alcoholics Anonymous offers a three-part solution to a three-part problem that I get to find in my first step. And when I was newly sober, I thought that the first step only consisted of two different parts. And I thought that I had a, a disease of the body and the mind, and I didn't really know much about the spirit. And later on in my sobriety, I found out on page 64, it talks about once the spiritual malady is overcome, then we straighten out mentally and physically. So not only do I have a disease of the body and the mind, but I also have one of the spirit. And what I found out is that there are sections of this book that I can apply to all three parts of my first step. And the way I've been shown to do that is I personally like to break the first step into three parts. And I like to look at those sections one at a time. And the first section I look at is the body. How am I an alcoholic physically? Why can't I drink like normal people, whatever normal is? By the way, I heard recently that there are no normal people in this universe, only those ha that who have not shared with you yet. And I can definitely identify with that. So why is it that once I put any alcohol in my body whatsoever, the same thing each and every time I drank happened? Every time I drank, the same thing happened. I wanted another drink. So why is that? Once I have drink, one drink, I have to have two. Once I have two, my body wants three and four and on and on. And before you know it, I'm closing up the bar at 2 a.m. And I really don't know why because I didn't really, I just didn't intend to do that. That wasn't my game plan for the evening. I just wanted to go have a couple to take the edge off. Can anybody relate? Any alcoholics in this room? Okay. So I found out in the doctor's opinion that if I'm an alcoholic, I have what back in the 1930s Silky called the phenomena of craving. He didn't even quite know what it was. He couldn't even fully explain it. But he knew that the actions of alcohol upon these allergic types, if you will, sets off a craving and all that craving means is, I can't just have one. i got to go have more. So I use all the information in a doctor's opinion to page 23, which is in chapter 2, There's a Solution, to look at the first part of my first step, which has to do with my body, the physical aspect of my disease. Then I look at the second part of my first step, which is my mind. People were telling me I was mental long before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and you guys proved it true. The parts of the big book that I use to look at my mind are pages 23 to 43. 
And not only do I see that I don't have a body like a normal person, but my mind isn't like those normal average social drinkers either. And my mind tells me neat stuff like, well, you can just have one and it won't burn you this time, even though you just got popped for a DWI or, you know, you, you had a case and you ended up taking on the, the uh, Monmouth County, the police department, you know, neat stuff like that. Um, my mind does real neat things according to the big book, like go into strange mental blank spots. Has anybody in this room ever had what I call a sober blackout, where you, you haven't been drinking, whether it be for a number of years or just a couple days, and before you know it, you wake up or come to with a drink in your hand and you have no idea. Yeah, we got alcoholics in this room. So I can have strange mental blank spots, I can have suddenlies. You know, I can drink on a horrible day, I can drink on a great day. My mind tells me to drink when it's raining outside and it tells me to drink when the sun is shining. My mind tells me to drink when the team loses or when the team wins. My mind tells me to drink when she leaves or when she stays. So that's the mental aspect of my disease. And then I found out I suffer from something called a spiritual malady, which the best description of the spiritual malady that, that I have ever found in the big book is found on page 52. And all that spiritual malady is, is my separation from a power greater than myself that will keep me sober. I call that power God today. And on 52, it asked me to, to take a look at certain certain parts of my life, certain areas of my life to see how I'm blocked off from that power. And they asked me neat questions like, Mike, are you having trouble with personal relationships? No, never. I get along with everyone. Mike, can you control your emotional, your emotional natures? Anybody ever ask you guys uh, or, or make this statement? You get angry over the most smallest things. The most minute things upset you. People used to tell me that all the time because I couldn't control my emotional nature. I'm a prey to misery and depression, and I couldn't make a living. And for me, that doesn't just mean my career or my job. I could not make a happy and successful life for myself. I couldn't do that in my own power. I had a feeling of uselessness and I was full of fear, and I was unhappy. And as much as I tried my entire life, I could not seem to be of real help to other people. And for me, those things don't apply just when I'm drinking, but they can apply when I'm stone-cold sober, in Alcoholics Anonymous, if I let up on the spiritual program of action. So what I would ask, if you will, what I would ask you guys to do is consider where you're at in each one of those areas today to maybe take a brand new, fresh look at your first step. And then I came to the second step. And for me, in the beginning, when I was new, because I like to look at the steps today in two different ways. How did the steps apply to me when I was brand new? And how did the steps apply to me today? Because it changes. You know, this thing isn't rigorous. and I guess this is a good place to say this. Um, 
the way we talk about the steps and the way we talk about this book up here today is not the only way. There is not one way in Alcoholics Anonymous. There is not one way in spiritual living. But I think what the big book does for us, it, or AA in general, it just it offers the best solution for the most amount of people. And what we're here to do today is to just share our own personal experience, strength, and hope. So when I was new, you know, I, I, I really can't, I guess I'm kind of unique because I came in Alcoholics Anonymous with virtually no concept of God whatsoever. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And I came in here with no concept of God because I wasn't really brought up with one. I wasn't brought up with a religion or anything like that. And over the years in Alcoholics Anonymous, I kind of got these concepts. You know, I, I, I kind of went from the group to higher power to to Christ to Buddha to Krishna and, and, and just kind of came full circle. And now today I'm back at no concept. Because the most beautiful statement that I think this book makes for me, that deep down inside every man, woman, and child is a fundamental idea of God, and it is in that place that only God can be found. So deep down inside, each and every one of us is that fundamental idea of God. Which is really strange for alcoholics, because for all, all our lives, we always went without and never within. And what I tell the guys that I sponsored today is that if you continue to go in, you never have to go out again. If you continue to look within yourself, you never have to go without yourself again. And the way I took the second step when I was new was um, I came to believe that a power greater than myself could help me too. I was willing to believe the question in the book asked me, at this point, do I now believe or am I even willing to believe that there is a power greater than myself which will solve my problem? And I said, yeah, and I moved on. And then I got to look at the third step when I was new, and you know what? I've complicated the third step way too much in my few short years of sobriety. And I think the best way I've ever looked at the third step is when I was about six months sober. And the thought just occurred to me, you know what? This third step, this making a decision to turn my will in my life over to the care of God as I understand God, because I didn't know what my will in my life were. And what I found out later on that my will is my thinking and my life is my actions. So the way I look at that step is today is that I make a decision to turn my thinking and my actions over to God. But when I was new, the decision I made was, I'm going to go on with the rest of the steps. I made a decision to do four through nine. And that's the simplest way I could look at it. Because four through nine literally is how we turn our will, which is our thinking, and our lives, which is our actions, over to the care of God. Before I turn it over to um, our second panelist, I'd like to read a little parable that, that I like a lot. And I think it really tells what 
the 12th step refers to as a spiritual awakening or a spiritual experience. What is this spiritual awakening? How do we awaken spiritually? So this, par- this parable says, a beggar had been sitting by the side of the road for over 30 years. One day a stranger walked by. Spare some change, mumbled the beggar, mechanically holding out his old baseball cap. I have nothing to give you, said the stranger. Then he asked, what's that you're sitting on? Nothing, replied the beggar, just an old box. I've been sitting on it for as long as I can remember. The stranger said, ever looked inside? No, said the beggar. What's the point? There's nothing in there. The stranger said, have a look inside. The beggar managed to pry open the lid, and with astonishment, disbelief, and elation, he saw that the box was filled with gold. I think Alcoholics Anonymous has nothing to give you but rather is telling you to look inside. Not inside any boxes in this parable, but somewhere even closer, inside yourself. So now I'd like to uh, introduce our second panelist who is going to describe to us the steps that get us to look inside ourselves, and that's Carrie C. Thanks, Mike. Hi, I'm Carrie, I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Carrie. Hmm. Uh, four through nine. I mean, like four through nine in 20 minutes. That's just like a, just a way, you know, to whet your appetite. Um, I like my, I love Mike's description of the first step. Um, I think that, you know, everybody says the first step is the step that you have to get right every day. And on some level, I agree with that. But for me. It's the second step that I need to get right every day because I have to believe that I am not my solution, that God is. And that when I know that God is my solution and not me, then I can go through the rest of the steps because really that's what we're making the agreement is, that I'm my problem, God and I gave my solution, so why don't I go about doing that and not doing, you know, drinking, um, <laughs> doing what I normally do. Um, this isn't speaking. Okay, never mind. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, four through nine. Uh, well, you know, what I, the big book, you know, it's a, in the third step, it goes through this whole long thing about the actor. And, you know, and it broaches this, this, you know, three pages about how alcoholics are selfish, self-seeking, dishonest, and frightened, and basically how we make decisions based on self that put us in a position to be hurt, and about how um, I, as an alcoholic, want you to behave in a certain way so my life will be much more comfortable. Um, and how we go about doing these things, either being nice or being mean, or both, um, whichever will get my way. You know, and Bill, you know, Bill goes through this before we go to the, go to the fourth step, because he wants us to understand in a general way what the nature of the alcoholic is. And then we come to the fourth step, you know, and it has four separate inventories to look at exactly how I do that in a more detailed fashion, you know, and I've seen many templates. I've seen so many different kinds of forms and four columns, eight columns, long forms, you know. But every good four-step has several questions. Who? What did they do? What did it affect? In the seven areas of self, you know, was it my self-esteem, my pride, my pocketbook, my personal relations, my sex relations, um, 
lost it. What? No. I always step on. Yes. That's that's always my favorite now because I didn't have my. I try to do this without the big book because I feel that sometimes I can get really stuck behind talking about the book and quoting the book and not really talking about my experience with the steps. And since I only have 20 minutes, I really don't have time to go through the book, and all I have is my experience. So let's get it again. Self, sex relations, self-esteem, uh, uh, pers uh, security, personal relationships, pride, and security. There we go. Got it. Um, and so does it affect those seven areas? And where was I selfish, self-seeking, dishonest, and frightened? And with me, you know, a lot of times I didn't, in almost all my relationships, you know, I was a victim because, you know, everybody does something to me and nobody behaves the way I want them to. And I wasn't really able to see where I made the decisions that put, put me in the place to be hurt. I didn't have clarity. You know, my life was about what people did to me and about my pain and preventing more pain. And really all I did was cause more because I spent my whole life thinking about my comfort, about basically keeping myself safe. And, you know, an alcoholic trying to keep themselves safe is really a huge mess because I'm babysitting me. I'm taking care of me. And there's no God in there. You know, and that's why, you know, in the third step, we make this agreement saying, okay, I'm not going to play God anymore. God's going to do his job and I'm going to do mine. And my job is to look at where I'm trying to be God. And that's really what the fourth step for me is all about, to give me clarity. You know, that's something that I lacked my entire life. And it's something that, that the program of Alcoholics Anonymous has given me, and specifically doing inventory. And it's not something, it's something that I did, the, you know, obviously I did a first step, a uh, four step the first time, you know, and I went through, it was a very broad thing, and I had like a hundred resentments. And um, my fourth column was a little sketchy, you know, my sponsor pulled some teeth there, you know. And as I've gotten sober and as I've stayed sober, um, I've been able to, I've been able to go a lot deeper, and I've been able to um, to really take a look at what what exactly it was that, that that's causing these things. What belief systems do I have that keep me in these situations, that put me in this place? What belief systems do I have that make me want to control you in order to make me happy? And Mike said it best when he ended when he said that um, that that I went without. I went to everyone else but me and God my entire life and I made everybody I ever came in contact with my higher power because I expected everybody in my life to give me those seven areas of stuff that I remem never remember all seven of them um, <laughs> I expected God to fulfill all those things I wanted God to give me self-esteem I want God to fulfill my pride uh, people to fulfill my pride people to fulfill my self-esteem to let my you know to to give me my ambitions, which was usually to be liked, to have prestige, to have money, to have people adore me, you know, those usually my ambitions or were my ambitions. You know, I expected people to give me those things. And when they failed to do so, I got resentful. And so when I'm looking at my fourth column of my resentment inventory, what I'm really looking at is what expectations did I have on you? What demands did I have on you? What belief systems brought me here? But most of all, where was I playing God? Because had I been accepting, had I been being the, uh, you know, being the agent, allowing God to be the principal, allowing God to be the father, and I'm the child, I wouldn't have these resentments. <laughs> that's the bottom line, you know. And that's why, you know, when when Mike was talking about the third step being, you know, a commitment to go through the steps, it's exactly, you know, what we're talking about in the fourth step is looking at exactly where I failed to align my will with God's. 
So when I look at when I look at my resentment inventory, that's what I'm looking at. And when I look at my fear inventory, for me, my fear was always in direct connection with my resentment. And I can find I don't think there was ever a resentment that I didn't have <laughs> several fears associated with. And the bottom line is that most of the time everything I did in my life up until I got a little bit of God in my life was motivated by fear but I didn't know that I thought that you know I was taking care of myself and I thought that um, that was playing by the rules and I thought that uh, well, I thought I was God um, that's the bottom line and and I loved it I loved the book it says that fear is uh, fear fear. <laughs> oh, fear is the corrosive thread in our life you know, and I look at my life as being a tapestry, you know, and my life is this big tapestry. And if you think about a corrosive thread, I mean, think about this. Did you ever, like, you know, go up into the attic and see, like, you know, really old pieces of, of uh, fabric and they have all kinds of holes in them, they're musty and they're just, you know, and they're just falling to pieces and they, like, break off in your hands? That's what my life was like before I had gotten into the steps. There was no continuity. There was no strength. There was nothing but hope, you know. And, and for me, you know, fear was the thing that was eating at the seams of my life. You know, I thought it was alcohol, but it wasn't. You know, it was my spiritual sickness. And for me, spiritual sickness and my fears are kind of like, they're interchangeable, you know. My spirit malady is usually motivated by, what I'm, <laughs> by my fears and my, my belief systems that are attached to those fears. So when we do a fear inventory, I mean, I've seen a lot of different types, and they're all really interesting. Um, but they really, they, you know, they come down to several different questions that are in the book. You know, it's like, what am I afraid of? Why am I afraid? You know, and what, what's a different way? And one of, one of the good questions that I like to add in here, you know, which is really from uh, resentment inventory, but, you know, what decisions did I make based on self, you know, because of this fear? So basically what I'm asking is how is my fear related to my resentment? Yeah. And when I can see that, when I can see that, that my fear is often directly related to my resentment, I can see that, that there was a lot more than what that person did to me that created that situation. And for me, it helps me, it helps solidify you know, my part in things. It's one thing to look at my part and say, okay, all right, I shouldn't have yelled at the person. And darn, you know, I got that temper and I cursed a lot and probably shouldn't have thrown the remote control. Um, you know, that's really easy to say, okay, that's my part. But when I look at my fears and I say, you know what, I spend my entire life looking for other people to give me a sense of self. You know, and who you think I am is who I am. And if you think I'm no good, then I'm nothing that I have no opinion of myself outside of what other people, people outside of me see, and no sense of self, and no God worth within. When I see that most of my resentments are based on me trying to control how you perceive me, and they're directly related to these fears, I can honestly see where my part is. That maybe I didn't do anything, but my belief system that says that you need to like me for me to be okay, which is directly to my fear of being rejected, not liked, not loved, not good enough, worthless, and therefore no good. Um, all of those fears are often directly related to that belief system. And that belief system got me in trouble more times sober in Alcoholics Anonymous and drinking. You know, um, so when I look at these things and I do that inventory, and you know, the first time I did the inventory, it was just, what am I afraid of and why? <laughs> and later on it was, okay, what am I afraid of, why? And, you know, 
why do I con continue to perpetuate this? Why do I still believe it today? You know, and why is it so important to me? And a lot of times the bottom line is that there's not enough God. You know, in the big book it says lack of power is our dilemma. You know, the bottom line is I fail to gain access to a power greater than myself when I'm stuck in self. And that if lack of power is my dilemma, and the only power through which I can stay sober for me is the power of God and the grace of God working in my life, then fear and resentment, all the manifestations of self that block me off from God, I need to find them, and I need to find them now. Because for me, that's the only thing between me and a drink is God. So then we talk about sex. And of course, sex, is, sex inventories are nice and fun. Um, <laughs> oh man, I've done hours on, on talking about the sex inventory. Um, uh, talking about it, I said. Um, <laughs> um, but what, my sex inventory is often, they're, they're a lot like my resentment inventory. And they're a lot like the fear that I was just talking about. Basically, you know, I need people to stay in my life. I want to control you. And I want you to see me in a certain way so that you'll stay. You know, and and we and I like the way the book puts it. Puts it, you know, it says, you know, who did we hurt? That's the first question, not who did we have the relationship with. Who did we hurt? Because he's assuming <laughs> that you know, some of the people on our sex inventory are going to end up on our amends list. You know, so the big question is, who do we hurt? Where do we arouse jealousy, suspicion, and bitterness? And that I do remember. Um, and you know, where was I at fault? You know, and again, where is my part? And I love it. What could I do different? You know, and through this, through asking myself what I can do different with my fears and asking myself what I could do def different with my, uh, my sex inventory, I have a good idea of what I should be doing and what a spiritual life looks like today. And that's something I didn't have. I didn't have a vision of what doing God's will looked like. And for me, you know, it's real simple. You know, love, tolerance, patience. You know, all those wonderful things that I, I, I like to say I live by but sometimes fail to do miserably. But, you know, that's why we have these inventories. You know, and then of course the harms inventory, which is exactly like the sex inventory, but people that you didn't have sex with are people that you didn't resent. <laughs> Just in case some got through the cracks. <laughs> you know. And then I take all these inventories and I do a fist up. And I think the best thing I can say about the fist step is simply that my brain can't fix my brain. My broken spirit cannot fix my broken spirit and that God's light shines through two windows better than one. And that when I sit down with another alcoholic and I share my brokenness with them and I'm vulnerable and I'm honest. And sometimes for me, you know, my fifth step, my first fifth step was the first time in my life that I was ever vulnerable and honest, you know. And uh, when I sit down and I do that, um, that, that fabric that I was telling you about, that moth-eaten fabric of my life that it was riddled with fear, begins to be emitted back together because again I gain clarity you know and, I, and the great thing about the fifth step is that it's something that you practice it's not something that for me that I did once but something I've done over and over again I've done a lot of fifth steps because I'm a I'm an inventory junkie and so I write lots of fifth steps um, or four steps so then I have to do a lot of fifth steps and um, as a result of that you know I've had that experience when I've been able to share myself with another human being and be honest about who I am. And I've been able, I've been graced to listen to a lot of fist steps. And so therefore I've been able to, to allow God to work through me 
and you know sit with another woman and do that for her and for me that's been some of the most healing experiences in my life you know and having shared that you know once having looked at all the parts of all the areas of my life that I'm unmanageable all the areas in my life where I'm playing God and not being the child I'm not you know following direction you know and I share that with another human being and I share that with God you know then I ask God to take all these things and simply because lack of power is my dilemma because I can't fix me and then I need to allow God to come into my life and to heal me because I've been trying to fix me my entire life I did it with alcohol I did it with men I did it with money I did it with food I did it with anything and everything I can get my hands on but God you know in the last analysis I had to go to God to ask God to fix me and I can tell you that it works you know once having been mended and it's not something like I took you know I do the seventh step after a fifth step you know I usually do it with the person who heard my fifth step after I take a quiet hour you know which is I sit and I think about what I just talked about and ask myself if I lied <laughs> now if I missed anything and then I take the sixth I take the sixth step and I ask myself you know Am I willing to have God remove all this? And usually after having done that, they step, yeah, <laughs> pain, now, take it, please. And then I say the seventh step prayer. And I say the seventh step prayer usually with the person that I'm doing the fifth step with. And, um, and then I, right then and there, make up a list. Because what better to allow God to work in my life but take more action? Because faith without works is dead. So I make up this list of people that I've harmed and I become willing to make amends to those people. And usually I'm willing to make amends to those people because I had just finished a fourth step and a fifth step, so it really hurts. And it was really hard, and I don't want to do that again. And I want to fix it because, wow, that was a big mess. You know, so for me, waiting a long time between doing my fourth and my eighth step gives me time to rationalize and justify why I don't need to make those amends. <laughs> so I make up the list, and I sit with my sponsor, and we figure out how I'm going to go out and make those amends. And the bottom line is this, is that, you know, I put a lot of harm out into the world through the things that I did that I wrote about in my four steps. And I need to go out and I need to fix those things because I need to allow God to rebuild my life. And the way that I do that is by taking action. And God has come through me and allowed me to make amends in my life and fix relationships that I thought could never be fixed. You know, and that things that I thought were broken that would never, never be fixed. And healing, you know, the healing that we that I talked about in the seventh step happened for me in the ninth step. It wasn't something that I felt when I took the seventh step. It was something that happened in the middle of my ninth step. And what I want to what I want to talk about here, and what what I want to close with is Mike talked about, you know, on page 52, the um, the eight points of an unmanageable life. Right, and I just want to bring you back to it because I want to compare it to something for a second. So I'm going to be a little repetitive for the tape, but that's okay. Um, and it says, um, you know, we're having trouble with our personal relationships. We can't control our emotional natures. We're prey to misery and depression. We can't make a living. We had a feeling of uselessness. We're full of fear. We're unhappy. And we can't seem to be of real help to other people. That's where I was before I embarked on these steps. That's where I was before I started writing my fourth step. And by the time I got not even halfway through my ninth step, the first time, you know, amazing things happened to me. And I'm going to tell you what happened. It says that if we're painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we're halfway through. We're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. 
We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we'll see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We'll lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us, and we will intuitively know how to handle situations that used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we, um, doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And not is not that not the exact opposite of page 52. I can't believe the day that I was you know that miss you know if you want to hide something from an alcoholic you put it in the big book, and I was going through the ninth step with a sponsor. You know, and I was reading this, and normally, like I'm like, oh, we hear the promises all the times at meetings. Well, let's skip that. You know, I, let's get into the meat and potatoes. You know, because I'm that kind of a rabid big book thumper. And um, I read that, and it just struck me. I'm like, oh my god, those those promises are the exact opposite of the eight points of of an unmanageable life. And what Bill promises us, he brings us from page 52 to page 84, and he says somewhere between these pages, you will find this. You will go from this to this. And that's been my experience. And that's why, you know, we're up here talking about this. And it's not because, you know, like, you know, it was nice to cut, you know, not have to pay the 20 bucks to get in here. Um, you know, and wear a pretty dress and talk in front of a bunch of people. But the reason why we're talking about this is because because this is, this is my experience, that if you do this, you'll go, or I will go, from a wreck to somebody who can embody the light of God, who could be a vessel of God. And that, to me, is a wonderful promise. And uh, with that, I'll call Kathy. Hi, everybody. My name is Kathy, and I am an alcoholic. And uh, my sobriety date is January 1st, 1991. Uh, I did not make a New Year's resolution. It was made for me uh, when I came in. Um, feet first. I don't know, Mike and Carrier have acts to follow some ways. Um, I'm here to speak about 10, 11, and 12. Sometimes I think those are the easiest steps to do, and then I turn around and some days they are the hardest steps to do. At uh, the end of the 11th step, I may mix around a little bit. At the end of the 11th step, it says we are an undisciplined, alcoholics are undisciplined, which is why we let God discipline us in the simple way we have just outlined. And that's what Mike and Carrie have been talking about, steps you know, one through nine. It, it's, it's a plan for living. However, somebody was very smart when they gave us a step 10, which said continue to take personal inventory and continue to make right, you know, set right any wrongs, make amends promptly. Um, because as much as I would like to believe that I could become perfect while I still walk on this earth, um, I'm still human. Mike said he has given up the idea that he can transcend his humanness. And... Uh, yeah, I, I also. I mean, I am human. I am going to make mistakes. Um, and for that, I'm very grateful that I have the rest of the steps. Uh, step 10 tells us, 
We have entered the world of the spirit. Our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. I have had my spiritual awakening by this point. Um, having gone through all of the stuff that I went through to get to get to the tenth step, I surely don't want to throw it out the door by resting on my laurels. I don't want to sit there and and, and watch all of the work I have done up to this point go away because now I can kick back and enjoy life. You know, I can enjoy life throughout the whole thing. Sort of like if I cleaned my house and I did a superb job from attic to basement and I got rid of all of the stuff and I've cleaned it and everything is fit and polished and, and perfect. If I don't keep it up, my house is going to be just as much of a wreck as it was when I started. I don't want this house to become a wreck again. So I continue to take personal inventory, which is nothing more than going through steps four through nine on a regular basis, on a daily basis, you know, quickly. Um, step 10 talks about um, continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. It's the fourth step. When these crop up, we ask God at once to remove them. Step six and seven. It says we discuss them with someone immediately. Step five. And we make amends quickly if we've harmed someone. Steps eight and nine. So right there, in, in very few passages, it's step four through nine that I do on a daily basis. I watch. I spend my time. I've had my spiritual experience. I know what it's like to live in the sunlight of the spirit. I want to stay there. When I move away from that and it gets dim or it gets dark, I can take steps right then and there to come back to center. I go to work. I have problems with my boss. I can start and come back to center. I can, you know, I have the things I need to do to keep myself there. Doesn't mean I'll ever not move away from it, but I, I don't want to go so far away that um, that I can't find my way back to center. And here is where it tells us that love and tolerance of others is our code. I'm bringing the principles that I've learned up to this point, the, the, the steps I've learned, into my daily living. Then it gives us some wonderful promises in the 10th step. Um, and it talks about, we've ceased fighting anyone or anything, even alcohol, for by this time sanity will have returned. Whoa, I get my brains back. We will seldom be interested in liquor. If tempted, we recoil from it as from a hot flame. We react sanely and normally. It's the second time they said sanely. And we will find that this has happened automatically. We will see that our attitude towards alcohol has been given us has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. This is not a thought that I could have ever had prior to doing the work, prior to doing the steps. This is the miracle of it. We're not fighting it, neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we've been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We've not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. My problem of using alcohol as my higher power has been removed because I've managed to clear the path away and I have another higher power, one is that is much more powerful than alcohol ever was. It says we are neither cocky nor are we afraid. This is just our experience. This is how we react and here's the warning, so long as we keep in, in fit spiritual condition. I need to keep that spiritual condition. Now that I've cleared the path to God, I need to keep it clear. Okay. Um, 
a lot of people talk about 10, 11, and 12 as the maintenance steps. And I think that comes from the next, the, the next paragraph. It talks about uh, what we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. To me, I like to think of them rather than maintenance as, as sustenance. Maintaining something for me is keeping it in the same and I don't want to keep my spirituality in this. I want it to, to grow and to build, which kind of segues right into the seventh step in a minute. So I like to think of them as sustenance, where I can feed it. Rather than maintain what I have, I want to feed it so it grows. It says, every day is a day that we must carry this vision of God's will into all of our activities. Here is where we take what we learn and bring them into all of our activities. Uh, how can I best serve these? I will not mind be done. And it's the proper use of the will. I, you know, I turned my will in my life over to the care of God in the third step. Now God's turning it back to me because I've got it, you know, we've got it on the right path. I have the use of my will today. You know, it's not like I, I don't, when I turn it over, it's not like I lose it completely. I've got it uh, on the path that, you know, that's aligned with me. I want to bring up to uh, step 11. Uh, one I really like a lot. It's easy. It's uh, prayer and meditation. Continued um, thought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understand praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. The book is a, um, a nice turn to deal with this if we need to. Um, to start off with, there's times to do it in the morning. And you know what to do in the morning, what to do at night. How do we do an evening review? Take a look at my day. It's not a people. There are many ways of doing it. I've had people who do it written, and they those questions that they ask. Where have I been? You know, where was I? Selfishness, uh, frightened. Um, an apology if we kept something to ourselves. The, the questions are on page 80, paragraph. You can answer them. I, I, as I said, I know people who do this rigorously at night. They they write out every one. I've done it times. I've done it many different ways. Um, Sometimes I just review it in my head. Uh, so I fall asleep in the middle of a review. <clears throat> and But uh, next morning I'll wake up and I'll finish it. I'll just try to, to do the, the review. As I said, I transcended my humanness. So sometimes I actually do fall asleep. Mm -hmm. But it's a way of looking at my day. I may not catch everything in a 10th step. I may not when I was selfish. Or I may not catch when I you know, was rude to that person. Or, you know, driving to work and, and the guy me off and I had some really unkind thoughts about them. I suspect put it. Um, you know, so that I, maybe I don't, sometimes I catch it and sometimes I don't, but when I review my day, I get quiet and I ask God to show me. I, I get some of those answers on that I need to clear up. So there are, you know, where was I resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid? I owe an apology. Have I kept something to myself which should be discussed with other Was I kind and loving towards all? What could I have done better? Was I thinking of myself most of the time? Or was I thinking of what we could do, what I could do for others? Of what I could pack into the stream of life? The questions that, you know, they don't take a lot of effort to, to, uh, to go through at night. But there is a big difference when you don't. When you don't review yourself on a daily basis. Um, just give us a warning though it says but we must be careful drift into worry remorse or morbid reflections I've gotten into a place times where when I'm not in fit spiritual condition and I do my in 
uh, nightly inventory, I can use that as a baseball bat and go, you're dumb, you're stupid, you shouldn't have done that. You know, all these things that I should should have or shouldn't have done. And it tells me, don't. that's not what it's about. It's not about beating myself up. It's not about looking at the terrible things that I've done. It's about how do I not do this again? And I have to be aware of what I do so I can be aware of how not to do this again. You know, how do I continue to stay on the path that God wants me to be on? Uh, how do I stay connected to this higher power that I've worked so hard to clear away that path? Gives us something to do in the morning. Talked, um, thinking about as we wake up in the morning, thinking about our 24 hours ahead. Um, from my review last night, I can take a look at is there something that I need to do? Did I do something yesterday that I need to make an amends for today? Um, why, you know, it, what, is, what are my plans for today? In general, sometimes it's a, like a laundry list type of thing or shopping list type of thing of things I have to do. Um, sometimes it's, it's much more spiritual and deep. But taking that time, and I must admit, unfortunately, I have been terribly remiss in the last couple of uh, months about doing my morning meditation. And I've different from it extremely. And I've been trying to get back to it, and I am. And, it, and like any other discipline, like any other habit, when I let go of it, it's really hard to come back to. And, you know, it, it, it's slow going, you know, and it's like I'm trying to get there. Um, but I am getting back to it um, on a, a little bit more regular basis. Uh, what I find that my meditation... My first thing in the morning always is, I have not lost this one, is um, I wake up in the morning and as I open my eyes, I'm not one of those people that perk up in the morning. You know, it's like I'm one of those people that have to set the alarm at least a half hour sooner than I want to get up because I hit the snooze button about three times. But the first time I have a conscious thought in my mind, what I do is I ask God to be, you know, to show me what his will is for me today, to, to help me to follow his will. Sometimes that's as simple as my morning prayer tends to get at times. Um, but I, I try to get my first conscious thought after hit the snooze button again. Um, you know, and then I get up and I, I go about my day and I, you know, I, I do my meditation. One of the ones that has helped me a lot in terms of the type of meditation I've done has been one that uh, comes from the Oxford group um, very early on. It was something that Dr. Bob did, which was uh, it's called, the, there's a pamphlet out there, I don't have one with me, but there is a pamphlet out there called How to Listen to God. And um, it's just sit down very quietly with a piece of paper and a pencil and write the thoughts that come through your head. Just simply write those thoughts down. Sometimes they're very deep and wonderful and very spiritual, and other times it's what I need to get at the grocery store. Um, <laughs> You know, I've had some experience with it. You know, where where things have been um, brought to my attention in my meditation that I need to address. Sometimes it's some person that keeps coming up in my head. You know, and, and it's a need to call them. I had a, a Mike and I um, actually there was uh, Mike was doing a, a fifth step with somebody, and um, we were staying at our house that for the weekend, and we were meditating. The three of us were meditating together, and that's, by the way, a wonderful um, practice if you have someone, you know, with you to do it, not just singly, but together, because it does tell us that, you know, we can ask our friends to join us in morning meditation. 
So we had it was Mike and I and this other person that were that was uh, that Mike was working with, and we were in meditation. And I was getting I was doing my writing one, and I kept getting this this meditation that said watch Gizmo. Now Gizmo happens to be our little dog. I'm going watch Gizmo, and I judged it, and I and I kind of threw the thought out uh, quietly. And a few minutes later, the thought comes out watch Gizmo. Mm-hmm. Threw it out again, third time. I, I I wasn't writing it, I was judging it. The third time I said, all right, finally, let me put it down. Maybe it'll just go away if I put it down. And I wrote it down said, watch Gizmo. And it was later that day, I believe it was, that um, we have a fenced-in yard. I put the dog outside, and someone had left the gate open. And my dog had took off. <laughs> he told me to watch Gizmo, and I didn't, and he took. We found him. He's back. Okay. Uh, but, you know, it was just one of those little things that, you know, their intuition. I, I'm, you know, I, it's not huge lightning bolts. At times, simple. Other times, I get nothing. It's the discipline of doing it that I think is spiritual practice. It's not necessarily what I get. It's the discipline of doing it that that clears the way. So that if there is something that God needs to tell me, at least I'm listening. And I I don't have to go, wait a minute, I've got to figure out how to use telephones before I can get the message back. You know? there are many kinds of ways to pray and meditate. There's no one way that's right. Like there is no one concept of God's right. Um, so whatever, you know, try, try everything. Pray everything. Meditate every day and find out what works for you. And sometimes they change. And meditation changes at times. It moves, you know, I, I, I do one thing for a little while. Sometimes it gets stale. Sometimes I need to do a little bit differently. Before my time runs out, I want to want quickly to um, step 12. Unfortunately, I hate to do it quickly, but and it's a lot in there. But step 12 talks about working with others. That this we've learned, and now what we need to do is take it out to other people. A friend of mine that we heard recently up in Rhode Island uh, was talking about. We talk about doing in the book when we're working about we're talking about doing the work, and that we think that going through the steps is the work. Um, it is work, but it is not the work that the book talks about. The work that the book talks about is to take this what we've learned and carry it to the next person who is sick and suffering. Um, the work really begins at the 12th step. Steps 1 through 11 are our preparation so that we're right with God. And now we take it out and take it to the next person who is sick and suffering. There's a movie out there that I absolutely love that, it, for me, exemplifies 12-step work, and that's Pay It Forward. I don't know if everybody's for I love that movie. It's probably one of my favorite movies in the world. And if you don't know what the premise is, it has to do with somebody does something nice for you. You take that. Don't pay back the person that did something nice for you. Pay it forward to three other people. So I'm not going to pay back my sponsor for what you did nice to me. I'm going to do and pay it to to at least three other people out there and hopefully carry this message to somebody else so that they can get what I got. Because if I give it back to the same person that gives it to me, we're just going back and forth, just the two of us. And the two of us can be wonderfully sober, but where's the rest of the world? (laughs) So I need to take it and pay it forward. And that's what the 12th step is about. What I'd like to, I want to read one more piece, do a little bit more reading in the book, um, because this is, our whole group's called Carry This Message. And it comes from the 12th step. It's the first two paragraphs in Working with Others. 
He says, practical experience will, shows that nothing will so in, much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. This, work, this works when other activities fail. This is our 12th suggestion. Carry this message to other, this is what we do in our group, to other alcoholics, you can help when no one else can. You can secure the confidence when others fail. Remember they are very ill. Life will take on new meaning. To watch people recover, to see them help others, to watch loneliness vanish, to see a fellowship grow about you, to have a host of friends. This is an experience you must not miss. We know you will not want to miss it. Frequent contact with newcomers and with each other is the bright spot of our lives. And then the book goes on to tell us how to be a sponsor. It tells us specifically, gives us directions. This is a textbook. How to work with other people. All right. And without going through all of it, because I've got about a minute left, um, I'm not going to, but you know, it really does give us this. And it tells us right in the book that probably the person that we're working with is going to help us so much more than we're going to help them. And this has, is my experience. I have found my doing my steps has been my kindergarten. It's been my preparation. It's been a joy to clear up my garbage. But more than that, to watch somebody else to grow, to clear up their garbage, to see the light come on in their eyes is something that is just absolutely the most the most wonderful thing in the world. Please don't not do that because you're frightened or because you don't know what to do. There are lots of people who can show you what to do. But the joy that comes from watching somebody else recover far surpassed my ability to recover. And that, that's God's gift to me when I can do that. Thank you. <laughs> I'm Mike Lawrence, and I'm still an alcoholic. I want to thank both uh, Kathy and Carrie for their experience, strength, and hope. In the uh, forward to the 12 and 12, it says that the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous are a group of principles, spiritual in their nature. If practice as a way of life can expel the obsession to drink and render the sufferer um, happily and usefully whole. What a beautiful promise, and I hope the, the message that we've conveyed to you uh, has expressed that. We have about 10 or 12 minutes left. We can uh, open it up to the floor if there's any questions, criticisms, <laughs> a better way to do it, which I'm sure there is. If anyone wants to share their personal experience with, with the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, we, we'd love to hear from you guys because today, as far as I'm concerned, I get so much more, I get fed more from listening to other people than I do uh, hearing this old windbag. So uh, please, someone go up to the mic or I'm going to have to talk more. Go up to the mic, please, for the, for the tape. Or else Dick will yell at you.